Welcome to River City 360, views and news from around Winnipeg. My name is Nolan Bicknell, and joining me as always is my co-host, Robert Zirk. Today on River City 360, should Portage and Maine be reopened to pedestrian traffic? RC360 attended a recent panel discussion about the future of Winnipeg's most famous intersection. Then RC360's Stacey Cardigan-Smith sits down with Anita Southall and Otto Lang, two committee members of the Nourishing Potential Initiative at the Winnipeg Foundation. And we're continuing our coverage of On the Same Page, Manitoba's largest book club. And we'll be speaking with David Robertson. He's the author of this year's selection, The Evolution of Alice. All this, some great tunes, and much, much more on today's episode of River City 360. Hello and good morning. Welcome to River City 360. Nolan and Robert with you this fine Sunday morning. At the, coming, from, coming from the corner of Portage and Maine, we've got a beautiful view of the uh, infamous intersection right down below us, Robert. That is true, and uh, of course there's a lot of debate, uh, especially recently, that's Passionate going debate, on. too. Passionate debate, which is interesting. It's, mm-hmm. it's always a hot-button issue for Winnipeggers about whether or not we should open up that intersection to traffic. And it's a very busy intersection, so I can understand the arguments against it, but where, where do you stand? Let's, let's put you on the spot here, Robert. Should they open Portage and Maine? Personally, I'm for it. As long as it's safe, right? Like, Yeah, safety and traffic are, of course, two of the biggest issues. And that those were two issues that were raised in Imagine Portage and Maine, which is a, a panel discussion that I attended on Thursday. Did the panel improve or disprove your uh, opinion after going to it? Or did you kind of have your mind made up a little bit? Uh, I was in favor of it going into the discussion, but... Um, seeing the experiences, one of the uh, presenters there, the keynote speaker was Tim Tompkins, and he's the president of the Times Square Alliance. So Times Square in New York, oh, you can yeah. imagine. He knows what he's talking about then. Exactly. Obviously, that's the busiest. Well, and before we get into that, let's, let's, uh, I'm, I'm really interested to hear what you learned and, and hear from a couple of the people at the, uh, at the panel. But first, uh, let's, let's start the show off with a song. What do you, what do you got for us to start things off? Well, seeing as how we're talking about, uh, the corners of Portage and Maine, the iconic intersection, uh, I thought we'd play Love's Just Around the Corner by Les Elgard. So here it is right here on River City 360. <laughs> Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to River City 360. Nolan and Robert here with you. So, Robert, on Thursday night earlier this week, uh, the Downtown Winnipeg Biz hosted a panel discussion uh, over at the Fairmont, right next door to the studio we're in right now, and right next door to Portage in Maine. Um, so you were in attendance. Tell us a little bit more about what you learned and what you saw. Yeah, so the discussion was called Imagine Portage in Maine, as I mentioned earlier. Um, it was a packed house. There were 300 seats, but really? uh, a lot of people that had to stand. Oh, um, man. It was a chance for people to learn some background on the history of Portage in Maine uh, and why it was closed in the first place. I can't remember a time where it hasn't been closed, yeah, but either. a lot of people there... A little bit, bit older were, or what? Like, What um, was the average age of the room, would you say, if you had to speculate? Um, you know what? It was a, it was kind of a mix. It was a mix okay. between, uh, older and younger people. It covered the history of Portage of Maine, why it was closed, but also, uh, a chance to see that other cities have reached a similar, uh, pardon the forthcoming pun, crossroads in terms oh. of, <laughs> in terms of what could or what should, uh, they do with an area that is a landmark, but at the same time, it has so much potential to be more yeah, than just that. I, I mean, people, like we mentioned at the top of the show, have very strong opinions on what should happen at, down at Portage in Maine. And it's probably the most divisive thing that I've heard debated in this city since I moved here. Well, to say the least, that was very evident from the Q&A portion uh, of the panel. Okay. But um, it is, of course, also important to remember that uh, to move any further with the idea of por- opening Portage in Maine, all the businesses at the corner have to approve it, and not just some. Uh, John Kiernan, the Director of Planning, Property, and Development with the City of Winnipeg, uh, he addressed the approach to that during the Q&A. And really it's about having this conversations like we're having tonight, about raising the bar of the discussion from open it, don't open it, to does this make sense, is it good for retail, is it good for tenant recruitment and retention? And does it make sense for the citizens and people who work, live, and play in the downtown? So it sounds like engagement of the businesses and, and, and of the Winnipeggers is really the key to, to what we're talking about here. It absolutely is. And um, as I mentioned, Tim Tompkins, the president of the, 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 president of the Times Square Alliance in New York City, um, was uh, the keynote speaker. And he made a very interesting presentation on how Times Square was able to really come to life and become a clean, safe public space. Um, you and I probably wouldn't know it, but back in the day, that wasn't always the case. Yeah, um, it just seems like that's when you think New York, you think Times Square, and that's just the the bustling hub of pedestrians. But I, I guess it wasn't always like that. Well, it was still a central point, but it wasn't known for being safe. Oh. It didn't have the kind of... Um, it didn't have the kind of energy that it has today. Interesting. Um, Jason Savixe, uh, the managing director of the Downtown Winnipeg Biz, which organized the event, uh, remarked on one of the key points that Tompkins made in his presentation. So he did talk about, you know, even though they created and they were able to create this pedestrian plaza, there's still a lot of tweaks that need to be made. And I really liked his comment about just trying it, experimenting, making the modifications as you start to hear from the public uh, and you engage them through that mechanism. I would say that was probably the most kind of interesting note was that you can try it. There will be some challenges as you go through it, but you can make some tweaks and, and people will be happy afterwards. So what were some of the reactions of the people in attendance at, at the panel? Like just, just some regular old folks? 
So I spoke to a few people. Um, one of the people that I spoke with, uh, Philip, and he's completing a master's degree in city planning. And he acknowledged that traffic and safety are among the top concerns, but that the experiences of other cities can help stakeholders figure out a plan that's custom made for Winnipeg. If these places which are even more intense, much larger populations, much greater concerns in terms of safety can do it, then we absolutely can. There's no reason we can't. And it just needs to be done well. And we know there's been a lot of great research been done over the last 50, 60 years on placemaking, on pedestrian safety. You have cars, you have people and how do you get them to mix together? And you can do that without there being a disaster. And we see this in many places all over the world. I'd like to hear what our listeners think about this. Should we open Portage in Maine? Give us a call on our listener line and tell us. Uh, Maybe you are old enough to remember what it was like when it was open to pedestrians. Tell us about that. Or just tell us uh, if you think that this is a legitimate idea for the city, if it'll improve or or, or t- take away from the sort of efficiency down here. Let us know. So you can call 204 944 9474 extension 360. Uh, but Robert, where can people go to learn a little bit more about this panel or just about uh, Imagine Portage in Maine, as it was called? Um, so the downtown Winnipeg biz has a great resource online. Um, they're working on putting some different case studies from different cities. Uh, there's also some concept ideas uh, from about a decade ago when uh, local architects were kind of reimagining what the space could be. Huh. Um, the address to visit is downtownwinnipegbiz.com forward slash Portage and Maine. And Portage and Maine is spelled out Portage A-N-D Maine. So again, that's downtownwinnipegbiz.com slash Portage in Maine. Coming up after the break, author David Alexander Robertson joins us in studio to talk about his book, The Evolution of Alice, which is the selection for On the Same Page, which is Manitoba's largest book club. But first, here's John Arpin with If You Could Read My Mind right here on River City 360.
Welcome back to River City 360. My name is Robert Zirk. I'm here with my co-host Nolan Bicknell, and we're joined now by author David Alexander Robertson. He was awarded the John Hirsch Award for Most Promising Manitoba Writer at the 2015 Manitoba Book Awards, and his book, The Evolution of Alice, is the On the Same Page selection for 2016. David, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. Without giving anything too much away plot-wise, could you tell our listeners, what is The Evolution of Alice about? A couple years ago... I was doing work on a reserve in Manitoba. I won't mention the reserve because it was inspired by uh, a tragedy that occurred there. And that really struck me, uh, not only just as a human being, but um, you know, as, as having children myself, uh, young children. Uh, and, and I never really was able to wrap my head around what that would look like for the family. Uh, and not only the family, but the community as well, because in a lot of our indigenous communities, um, they're so close and the communities are so uh, intricately wound together that when one person uh, experiences a loss, the whole community experiences that loss. And so I wanted to process um, that loss so I could kind of try and understand um, what, what that would look like. What, what does that grief look like for somebody and, and how would they deal with it in, uh, through the course of their life? And it, it started off as me just writing a one short story called The Evolution of Alice. And it was just about this young woman, a mother of three, and her youngest daughter is murdered uh, by somebody who was never caught. And, and so she has to deal with that loss, and her family has to deal with that loss. And so the story is about how, how that loss occurs and the effect it has on her and her daughters uh, and, and her close you know, family friend Gideon. And the story stuck with me so much that I decided I wanted to expand on it. The question really is, can she overcome it? And if she can't, then how do they move on? And how do they uh, maybe accept that loss and live without her in that pain so in a, in a, it's a, it sounds morbid, but I think there's some hope in how they come together as a family and as a community uh, in, in dealing with that, that unthinkable real tragedy. What was your uh, reaction to the evolution of Alice being included in the shortlist and eventually being selected for on the same page this year? I was thrilled. I was surprised too, I guess. I was really excited. I had no thought that I might win at all because I was up, I was up against some really heavy competition in um, uh, Miriam Taves in All My Puny Stories, which is probably my favorite book last year that I read, in Thompson Highway's Kiss of the Fur Queen, in Maurice Moreau's uh, Adoption uh, Memoir, Detachment. And so I read all of them because we're all, in a, we're all kind of a community. And so I, when I guess when I found out I won, I was, I was pretty surprised. Uh, I remember my publisher called me and I was, I was on a run and I kind of stopped running and, I, and I, was, uh, I took a moment to think, wow, like... I can't believe that I won that. That's pretty cool because I, I, I mean, I, I respect those other writers so much. And I never really expected to be able to win that competition. So it was, it was pretty cool. And I was, uh, I was really thrilled and honored to, to win it. What are some of the upcoming events that you have related to the book? We have uh, an event coming up at, the, at CMU on February 11th at seven o'clock. I'm going to be re- doing a reading from Alice talking about it a bit. And then we're going to do uh, kind of a fun little activity, uh, building paper airplanes for it and writing little okay. notes in the uh, paper airplanes, which is kind of what, what uh, a couple of the Alice's girls do in one of the stories. A couple of really, I think, interesting events, I guess like emerging writers would find them really interesting. And I guess anybody who's interested in the writing process it- itself, I have an event at McNally Robinson coming up. I don't remember the date, actually. <laughs> I don't have the calendar in front of me, but um, it's with uh, Warren Carew and Charlene Deal from... Uh, the Winnipeg Writers Festival, and it's deconstructing the book. So we're going to talk about the whole journey of where it came from, how it morphed into what it was, and that whole space in between of um, kind of the headaches of writing it, um, 
the kind of the really amazing moments in writing it and that whole concept of editing and killing your darlings and um, the stuff that we left out and why. Some of those I think might be surprising. Uh, and then we have another event uh, at the Millennium Library at Carol, the Carol Shields Auditorium. I guess to cap it all off, and we're going to have a past winners event. So uh, Joan Thomas will be there, Kate Verbet, uh, myself, Beatrice Mazonier, and uh, a couple of people from uh, Manitowapau, the Anthology of uh, Indigenous Writing. So uh, that, we're looking forward to having those events. And uh, I think it's just great to keep the book alive and, and the characters because when I finished it, it's kind of this bittersweet feeling because you get to know the characters so well, they feel real to you. And when people read it, I guess it's nice to, to know that those characters are living on for other people. And I think that's one of the things uh, that I really love about the book is the characters feel so real. And that's what I hear from readers is they identify with them and they really feel like they're kind of getting to know them throughout the novel. What do you hope that people will take away from reading The Evolution of Alice? You know, I don't know. I mean, I think it's just, it's great to read a good book uh, sometimes and hopefully they they enjoy reading it. Hopefully it makes them think because although it is a, a fiction novel that I hope is a good experience to read, um, we I do tackle some issues in there that are, that are important to me, trying to dispel some of the myths of living on reserve and what that looks like. Um, and some of the difficulties of, of living in a big city when you're, when you're Indigenous and coming from a small community and, and the perceptions that we face um, from people who may not know what our background is or what our histories are. And, uh, and, and I guess like the whole concept of trying to understand each other and the positives that come from that, of, of getting to know each other, is a very simple concept. But um, when we do that, I think we're going to be in a pretty good place together. And of course, um, you know, dealing with loss and, and coming together as a family. And on the same page is such a unique venue to create a dialogue about all those themes and issues. Yeah, I mean, starting that dialogue, uh, you know, literature is a good way to do that, whether it's through novels or graphic novels. Um, uh, if we get great books out there that make us think and talk, I mean, that's that, that's really important. I think that's one of the avenues through which we we find such, uh, positive change happening. So if a novel can do that, that's great. But at the very least, hopefully the people will enjoy reading it. Where can people go to learn more about your work and some of the uh, upcoming events that you're a part of? I think they can uh, check out the Winnipeg Public Library's website. They have uh, the events posted there. So I have a on the same page.ca? Yeah, I think something like that. Go by McNally Robinson's. All, uh, all my books are there. Uh, you could check out my website. It's just uh, darobertson.ca. Or I have a Facebook page at Dave Alexander Robertson. And I post the events there as well. Excellent. Dave, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. David Alexander Robertson is the author of The Evolution of Alice, uh, which is the On the Same Page selection for 2016. And the next event is coming up this Thursday, February 11th at 7 p.m. Uh, it is called Paper Airplanes, and it's at the Marpeck Commons at CMU 2299 Grant Avenue. Thanks, Robert, and thank you, David, for coming in. Coming up after the break, the Nourishing Potential Committee held its last meeting recently, and we'll take a look back at some of the highlights from the initiative's five-year history. But first, here's the Benny Goodman sextet with Breakfast Feud, right here on RC360.
Thank you for listening to River City 360. My name is Robert Zirk. I'm sitting here with my co-host, Nolan Bicknell. Uh, Nolan, we've covered nourishing potential fairly extensively on RC360. We interviewed one of its ambassadors, Jonathan Taves, three-time Stanley Cup winner, uh, Absolutely. gold medalist as well, um, and uh, among many uh, prominent players within the initiative. Uh, but nourishing potential is kind of winding down in a way. That's right. And uh, RC360's Stacey Cardigan-Smith interviewed two committee members, or I guess former committee members since the uh, committee is dissolved, of nourishing potential, uh, Anita Southall and Otto Lang. And they sort of talked about a little retrospective about nourishing potential and, and its effect on Winnipeg and on, on our communities over the past five years. Stacy. Thanks, Nolan. Uh, I'm sitting here with Anita Southall and Otto Lang, uh, co-chairs of the Nourishing Potential Advisory Committee. Listeners uh, might remember we had Anita on um, in the summer, I believe. Uh, She was talking about the uh, Nourishing Potential campaign, which was supported by Jonathan Taves. Welcome back, Anita. Thank you. Um, And thanks so much, Otto, for joining us. My pleasure. Um, So, Anita, can you remind us, how did that campaign with Jonathan Taves end up doing? The the Jonathan Taves campaign for Nourishing Potential was a great success. Uh, We at the foundation received in the period of the campaign, which was about 10 weeks long, uh, almost 350 individual gifts, totaling more than $644,000. Um, so, uh, and a variety of kinds of gifts. One of the innovative features that the foundation used was a text campaign. So you texted a number and you'd automatically make a $5 gift. And, th- and that was exposed by um, uh, pieces at movie theaters that were featured uh, before the start of films through the summer, um, just as one example of, of uh, innovative technique to get the word out during his campaign. Oh, that's great. That's that sounds amazing. It's a very successful campaign. It was very exciting. That's great. So, and I, I know that the Jonathan Taves campaign was just part of like a very a longer term effort. Otto, um, tell me about the five year initiative. Well, the five year plan was to establish a five million dollar fund, which would allow the uh, ongoing delivery of the service that nourish, nourishing potential was providing in the uh, five years of that build up. And by raising funds as the foundation went along, the foundation had the great chance to experience what uh, these uh, small gifts, they're relatively small, but enough of them to enough places that it demonstrated uh, what good can be done. And that's what really impressed me was the um, work of the uh, foundation in assessing what was going on and what we were therefore able to see in terms of Uh, So many volunteers everywhere across the city uh, helping to make these programs work where they were getting food uh, to uh, people who needed it, kids who needed it, uh, but also introducing the nutritional aspect where you're trying to emphasize nutritional food and um, teaching about nutritional food as well. So it was a great program all in all, and now the endowment fund means it can continue. Okay, so tell me a little bit about that in endowment fund. What was the what was the goal of it? Uh, the, the goal was five million dollars, and uh, we're within the uh, foundations within inches of of getting there. So it will assure the ongoing uh, program because the revenue from that endowment fund will allow it to continue. 
That's great. Otto, you mentioned one of the stories that you really liked was, or just the ability to buy a fridge, which is not really like a huge investment, but it's kind of a nice story that resonated with you. Do you have another, um, another story that you think of when you think of nourishing uh, potentials impact? Well, uh, we actually managed a couple of times to go out into the uh, field and see uh, the groups at work and uh, watching the uh, young people get involved themselves in uh, preparing the food and learning about what is uh, nutritious food, uh, getting away from the stereotype of uh, the uh, sugary sodas and things like that and into real food and really enjoying it and getting a f- uh, fun at it because of the people who were working with them and teaching them about it. That was a very important thing. What about for you, Anita? Do you have a favorite memory? Yes, I, I'm sitting here with a smile on my face because Otto and I um, are on the same wavelength there. It, we had the privilege of going to a couple of different places um, Two of them that stand out for me are Rossbrook House and the fund um, helped to furnish a new kitchen at Rossbrook House um, to be able to um, um, enhance the the um, nutritional food preparation for uh, many of the youth that um, attend there on a regular basis. Um, and um, one of the other locations was a place called Ray Resource Assistance for Youth. And again, we were provided with a beautiful spread by some people who were receiving um, culinary training there um, and some of the support that uh, went to resource assistance for youth, for street-entrenched youth, um, was a food handler certification. So um, young people are getting a leg up for potential future employment, are learning how to, um, the knowledge of uh, nutritional um, and safe uh, food handling and preparation for each other and um, gaining the confidence of putting on the kind of spread that they served us at one of our granting events. So, and can I just add, there's one more piece which I, which I, is also memorable for me, which was, Otto may remember, the, the healthy sandwich contest. There was a healthy sandwich contest that the Winnipeg Foundation sponsored, again, to highlight the work of Nourishing Potential. And uh, our committee had the um, privilege of seeing a couple of the videos, the runner-up and the winner's video, of some really creative sandwiches and the video of the teams that put the sandwiches together. uh, And that was so much fun. And it was just the, honestly, it was the youth energy that comes through something like that. It just, uh, it makes me smile today thinking of it. We are speaking with Otto Lang and Anita Southall. They are uh, former chairs, co-chairs of the Nourishing Potential Committee. After the musical break, we will hear more of Stacey's interview with them, and she'll ask Otto and Anita just exactly what they learned while serving on the committee and what kind of legacy Nourishing Potential will leave in our community. But first, here's Ray Conniff with Say It With Music right here on River City 360. Oh, 
Welcome back to River City 360, and now the conclusion of our interview with the Nourishing Potential Committee's co-chairs, Anita Southall and Otto Lang. Here's RC360's Stacey Cardigan-Smith. So, what can I ask you? What do you think you've learned from the experience? Uh, Maybe you can start, Otto. Well, just that it was... uh very inspiring to see how many people are out there in the community trying to do go- good work and uh, that the foundation was able to add a little touch to this and I think the uh, nourishing potential side was the little touch. It's not that it was an important one but in a sense it's small and uh, it, it um, helped to change the direction and the attitudes in regard to the program and this is what I look forward now to watching the foundation because it's now back in their ballpark to consider um, how the program continues and then exactly what nuances will be introduced to it. And uh, I think Anita and I both are grateful to have had a chance to talk to them, uh, the people who were in the field doing the work and analyzing the situation, and hopefully to help them in the thinking of to uh, about, about the future. Mm-hmm. Um, do, you have, do you have something that you, you feel you learned from the experience? Uh, well, I, I certainly want to echo what Otto was saying about at the end of the day, um, you know the the donation amounts um, per each individual grant were not huge, and yet so much has been accomplished um, for those few thousand dollars um, per grant. Um, and um, the I suppose this last summer with the Jonathan Taves campaign and a whole number of new um, participants uh, as donors, um, through the way that the campaign occurred and, and the momentum boost that we received through that, um, causes, um, it's maybe another way of saying what Ottawa shared, but, but causes us to have, I think, just, uh, the ability to know how, um, people in the community are contributing and the importance of these initiatives, um, to the community as a whole. Um, the other thing is the beauty of this particular initiative and what the foundation board identified as important criteria for the funding is that is the nutrition education piece that um, children be empowered to feed themselves and feed each other and to learn as they go. We saw through many of the initiatives that families then came together to work with their children and, and to support each other as local community and so yeah the volunteer energy was uh, tremendous uh, the information that we had the privilege of reviewing was um, at times uh, very poignant and emotional and um, you know we would honestly have a big slice of happiness served to us at every one of our meetings and I don't, I don't know how to put it any better than that. We all just left there always on a, on a big emotional high, I think. I understand that uh, the advisory committee has now wrapped up its work. Um, but, uh, Anita, maybe you can explain why that is. And um, I understand nourishing potential grants are still available, though, right? Yes, absolutely. Grants are certainly still available. And it was always the plan to incorporate nourishing potential into the foundation's regular community grants process after this initial five-year impetus 
to establish, in particular to um, fund the endowment that Otto was speaking of, that $5 million uh, capital fund. Um, so um, now that it's rolled into the regular community grants process, uh, it streamlines the application uh, for uh, continued grant money. So any charities looking for that kind of support uh, will include their application during the regular community grants intake. And um, my information is that the next round is due June, the th- uh, pardon me, June, wow, <laughs> J- January 30th. Looking forward to that summer, eh? Yeah, January 30th. I I believe you're right there. And um, so, Otto, maybe you can tell me what's next then for Nourishing Potential. Well, this is very much now in the hands of the uh, foundation itself because they're looking at the experience and exactly the uh, details about when applications will be made and how they'll uh, compare these applications with other grants they do, which are uh, not all that distant from them in terms of type and so on. And uh, they'll they'll streamline all of that and make that available. So the the idea will be there and no doubt uh, find its new form. And I'll look forward with everybody else to see exactly uh, what detail the foundation puts on that as they develop the new plan. Well, thank you both so much for joining me. And thank you so much uh, for all your hard work with Nursing Potential. I can't believe it's been five years already. (laughs) We can't either. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you're most welcome. Thanks, Stacey. If you'd like to learn more information about Nourishing Potential or any of the funds at the Winnipeg Foundation, you can visit www.wpgfdn.org. We've almost come to the end of our time together this morning, but we have time for one more song. Uh, How about Nelson Riddle with Straighten Up and Fly Right, right here on River City 360.
That's a wrap on this week's episode of River City 360. Thank you very much for listening, and a huge thank you to all of our guests today. If you want to hear more views and news from around Winnipeg, listen to any of our past episodes, or subscribe to our podcast, please visit us online. Our address is rivercity360.org. Again, that's rivercity360.org. River City 360, views and news from around Winnipeg, is a project of the Winnipeg Foundation in partnership with Community News Commons and CJNU 93.7 FM. And we'd love to hear your feedback on the show or any of the topics that we've discussed today. Have you read the latest on the same page book, The Evolution of Alice? What are your thoughts on Portage in Maine? Should it be reopened and why? Um, Give us a call. We would love to hear your feedback. Our number is 204-944-9474, extension 360. And uh, again, you can leave us a comment about the show, suggest a topic for a future show, or if there's a certain song you'd like to hear to make your Sunday morning that much better, let us know. Again, that's 204-944-9474, extension 360. We're also on Twitter and Facebook. You can search us at RiverCity360 on Twitter and search just RiverCity360 on Facebook. I'm Nolan Bicknell signing off for RiverCity360. And I'm Robert Zirk. Thank you again so much for listening and be sure to tune in next week at 8.15 for more views and news from around Winnipeg. Have a great Sunday. Mm-hmm.